Welcome to the Changemakers Podcast, brought to you by Graf Martin Communications, where we discuss ministry, marketing, and leadership for good. I'm your host, Ellen Graf Martin, and each episode you get to join me in conversation with some of the most interesting changemakers and groundbreakers from across Canada and beyond. This is a special episode of the Changemakers Podcast, because today I'm introducing you to Compassion Canada's new president and CEO, and my friend, Alice Nally. If you're listening to this podcast, be sure to also head over to our YouTube channel, linked in the show notes, and watch our conversation. I'm excited to be bringing you this episode because I think it will give you an inside look at Allison, who is one of the most intentional and fun thought leaders I know, and her heart for Compassion Canada. In this episode, I talked to Allison about her calling into ministry early in her career with Youth with a Mission and her later transition from working in corporate finance to ministry with Compassion Canada. We talk about the humility that's required in leadership. And I ask her whether child sponsorship actually works. I can't wait for you to listen in on our conversation. Let's dive in. So glad you're here today. So Allison, okay, I think that our history goes further than just four years. Okay. Because I, when, so I was privileged to get to be part of what felt like a family event at your, um, okay, what was the official title? Uh The event itself was the Succession Gala. So it was the transfer of leadership, the passing of the torch from Barry Sloan White, our 36-year veteran, to me. And that happened October 25th. Yeah, that's no big deal. 36 <laughs> years, 36 yeah, years. Yeah. And then you coming in. So we're going to talk about that. Okay. You know, it was actually a video that your brilliant husband, Tommy, put together. Um, and he is a cinematographer. Uh-huh. So it was a very good video. And um, he actually reminded me, I'm sure we've talked about this before, but I thought this is why I think Allison and I get each other is that you started out in ministry with YWAM. Yes. I was with Operation Mobilization. Those are like cousins, an American cousin and a, and a European cousin, but yeah. they're cousins and yeah. they get each other. And so let's talk a little bit about that. So like how, t- tell us, okay, you were with YWAM. Where mm-hmm. were you? What were you doing? Okay. Yes. Yeah, so very much so my calling into ministry which then led eventually a decade, a decade down the road into my calling into compassion started at, at YWAM, as you said. And so I was doing the DTS program, the Discipleship Training School, and my outreach was primarily in Chiang Mai, Thailand. And um, the way I would describe it is it really was my first time away from the nest and the first time that I was thrust into a different cultural context where, of course, in many ways, I learned so much more about myself, but also the world around me. And it was in Thailand that I was confronted with not just poverty, but child poverty and child Mm. mortality in a way that just rocked me and was a burden that I had since that time. And you met your husband in YWAM also. I did, yes. (laughs) And so I often say, you know, I left with this sense of calling into ministry, this burden for kids and this attractive guy that I started to get to know uh, quite a bit more after that. But yeah, my husband was leading the School of Missions and Evangelism and really had a heart for the nations would have been the way that he expressed it at the time and was really passionate about evangelism and reaching the poor and the marginalized. And where was your DTS? It was in Hawaii? Well, you know, we were suffering for Jesus in Honolulu, Hawaii, which is kind of how you choose where you're going to serve the Lord at that ripe young age. But yeah, we were at the Oahu base. 
And, you know, I really believe, and I, maybe it's just because I grew up into adulthood in OM. I spent five years yeah. with OM. I don't know if you knew that. No, I didn't. Um, I was with them for five years. And I think there is a bit of a debt that the church around the world owes to these programs that take young, impressionable people with a lot of enthusiasm <laughs> and work to shape them and yeah. expose them um, not just to not just to people like the marginalized in places like Thailand or for me, I was in Central America or wherever they are, but also working on a team and a cross-cultural team. I know the team I was on was at first was 214 people from 40 nations, including like Sudan and the Philippines and Holland and United States and Canada. So you learn a lot about leadership and about ministry in that setting, don't you? Oh my goodness. It's something that I'm not sure I appreciated quite as much at the time um, to the degree that I do now as I look back. Because yeah, exactly as you said, here I was um, still a teenager, late teenager, Mm -hmm. early adulthood, traveling with about a dozen people from 10 different countries, being thrust into a context that none of us had grown up in, that were dependent on um, our ability to listen well to one another, to navigate um, you know, new territory with one another, to trust one another, to defer to one another. And absolutely the leadership learning that happens in that real life context is pretty significant. It's incredible. And I don't know if you were similar, but we also had people who had been doing this their whole life, like yeah. their whole adult life. And and I learned personally a model of mentoring hmm. through that because we had people who were just so committed to this. They'd been yeah. doing this you know, missions for 30 years and the mentoring. And I think, isn't that amazing preparation for you Yeah, for what you were going to go into, I guess, 17 years later, is that right? Yeah. That you would be walking into a season of being mentored by someone with an enormous amount of ministry experience Mm -hmm. because it takes a humility to, to be mentored, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely it does. And, and I remember with fondness that we were connected with a local couple, not a local couple, sorry, a couple actually from the United States that had been living in Thailand for about 12 years at the time. And the way that we were able to, as you said, you know, learn from them and, and um, you know, get best practices from them and the way that they just invited us in to their new context was pretty rich. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and a teachability mm-hmm. is one of the things that I have learned is the most winsome in a leader to me. Yeah. And you learn that there, right? You're yeah. there to learn. And it is kind of like this weird experience where everyone is, <laughs> is it not kind of a weird thing? When yeah. I look back on it now, I'm like, oh, I feel for our leaders. We were all these <laughs> enormously enthusiastic young people yeah. who wanted to learn everything, kind of thought they knew everything. And, you know... And are just going. So, would you recommend this for like my niece is actually yeah. in Muskoka right now on a DTS? Um, do you recommend this as a starter starter career in ministry? Yeah, yeah. You know what? I would say that the idea of a gap year, which mm-hmm. is really what it was, and taking the time to go away to learn, to experience new things, to um, challenge your perspective and your biases and your blinders that you have when you've been raised in one context. Mm-hmm. For me, my context was a primarily Caucasian, wealthy, affluent, privileged household from a global perspective. Mm -hmm. It didn't feel that way to me, but that was Mm -hmm. my perspective. And so, yeah, I think it's incredibly rich for young people to be confronted 
with their own cultural context and lens and viewpoint in ways that you just can't get without getting into, you know, a different context and a different environment. Of course, what we know in hindsight is uh, these young leaders have a zest and I think a God-given zest and desire to change the world and to impact those around them. But what actually happens is that you are changed. As I said, your perspectives grow, you learn in a way that I think, yeah, young people should really look for those opportunities and lean into them. And I think part of that leaning in, and for me, and I suspect for you as well, I suspect that this is true for most people who would go on a trip like this, is that God gets bigger. And I think for me, it meant that I saw that the God who was so real to me was just as real, if not more real, to someone like we had people on our team from Sudan Mm -hmm. and they had just walked through horror and um, people who it was a reality for them that their church could be bombed or that had gone through childhood poverty in ways I would have never experienced. But God was just as present there. Oh, yeah. And just as real there. And it blows your perspective of God, doesn't it? Oh, my goodness. And you learn so much. So one of the things that I reflect on often that started there in Thailand, but certainly I encounter as I travel now with compassion, is, you know, we would say things like trusting God for our daily bread, Mm -hmm. you know, as, as young baby Christians. And to actually sit in a home with a family who is trusting God for their literal daily bread, for the opportunity Mm. to feed their family that day, having no idea what the next day would bring. And the depth of faith and dependence and trust that they have Mm. is just something that I continue to be in awe of compared to, you know, at times, oftentimes actually the shallowness that can come Mm -hmm. with my own faith Mm -hmm. when I can be so self-sufficient and really can provide myself and my family with what they need, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how God sets the stage early, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think it, it, there is that principle of when you're faithful in the little things, he gives you bigger and bigger and bigger things. And so we're seeing that today because now you have this title that is a big title, CEO and president of Compassion Canada. Compassion International Canada or Compassion Canada? Compassion Canada. Canada. Yeah. Um, And that's a big title to carry. And so what, but we were were talking earlier and you Uh were saying that it doesn't feel so heavy right now. It may have felt heavier during succession planning and timing, but it doesn't feel, so so what makes it lighter now? So what I would say is, first of all, uh, God has clearly called me into ministry. As I mentioned, it was so evident to me in my time in Thailand. It set on the back burner of my life for about a decade until God really reawakened my husband and I into this Mm -hmm. life of ministry together. Um, He actually used my own kids and my recognition that they were afforded certain opportunities just because of the privileged household they were born into to really open up my eyes again to the needs of kids around the world and in my own backyard at home. And so, you know, that led me on a journey to to leave my career, to, uh, you know, sponsor one child and to do what we could as a family to just get engaged, which eventually led me to compassion. And uh, the point of this being, there was a sense of calling into ministry and calling into compassion. And then just these um, step-by-step, or this path that, you know, Mm. my family went on and that I went on that was just a series of obedient steps that led in time to this moment that comes with a sense of 
peace and confidence that God who calls you will equip you. Mm -hmm. And when it's not something that you asked for or looked Mm -hmm. for, but He led you to so obviously, uh, you can rest a little bit more peacefully in that. And I think, so you have an, there's an inter, okay, this isn't a contradiction. That's not the right thing, but Uh you are one of the most intentional people I, I think I know, but you didn't join Compassion. How many years ago was it? Seven Seven years ago. Seven years ago saying, I am going to be the next CEO and president. You were volunteering, right? Like you started by volunteering with the organization. Yes. So, and I think I remember you telling, so you've told me something that really stuck with me, Mm -hmm. that what actually prompted it was around redecorating your daughter's bedroom. Is that correct? Oh my goodness. I told you. That has so stuck with me. Maybe tell us that story because that has stuck with me and I think someone needs to hear that. Yeah, yeah, good. Okay, so we're going back now, probably about eight years ago. I had just had my second daughter, Scarlett. My oldest daughter, Ireland, was about two and a half years old. And there was this very provocative moment in time that really my husband and I would call this reawakening. In hindsight, again, I can see how God had been preparing me for that Mm -hmm. and creating the environment and the people around me that were informing our thinking and challenging um, our life. And um, so I remember sitting in my basement, holding my youngest daughter, Scarlett, and watching my husband and my oldest uh, playing in the distance. And I just became overwhelmed. And there was this sense of like void and emptiness, which was contrasted with the reality that I really had everything I ever wanted. Mm -hmm. Amazing husband, great career. We were living in our dream home, healthy kids, you know, all of those things. You were working in financial services, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I was a financial advisor at the time. And, and there was an emptiness and God used that moment to make me realize I was missing it. We were missing it as a family. And shortly after, and this is, you know, to answer your question, I was prompted again by this burden for kids living in poverty. And in my discipline, as you said, started researching and thinking, who's out there? What are they doing? And how can we get involved? And I came across a photo essay by a gentleman named James Mollison called Where Children Sleep. And it shows really provocative photos of kids in their modest sleeping quarters around the world, kids sleeping in tire holes on the street. And and I was moved, as you can imagine, was really moved by that. And I remember closing the laptop. I was in my kitchen and walking upstairs. Uh, My daughter had been calling me and I walked into her room and she was sitting on her bed in this beautiful, picturesque, Mm. Pinterest Mm -hmm. worthy bedroom. And it broke me. It absolutely broke me. I literally went down on my knees and it was the stark contrast of opulence and affluence Mm. against extreme poverty. And the fact that I felt like I was standing in this gap and I had a choice to make. And hear me when I say um, Pinterest like rooms are not wrong and bad. You know, that's not the point. It was a reflection of my heart and the fact that I was so narrowly focused on my own girls, on giving them everything they could ever want and more than they could ever need while ignoring the calling that we had as a family to be advocates for kids. Oh, that's so good. There is a lot to unpack there. Yeah. And I think because I have I have a daughter a year younger than your youngest. Yeah. And um I think because of because of how I've grown into this ministry and leadership, I feel like my first job is to lead her. Yeah, into yeah. understanding 
Um, you know, we just had a conversation yesterday about philanthropy, which with a seven-year-old who has wow. a limited attention span is a challenge, but it's also good. And talking about like, what does it mean when we, like, I often ask her the question, do we have more than we need? Yeah. And if we have more than we need, what is our responsibility with that? It isn't to build a bigger barn. <laughs> we talk about building a bigger table, not a bigger barn. So that is also, that is, you know, just in giving, but that also is in living. Yes. And for your family, it has meant that you're living this out. So what has that looked like for your family mm-hmm. as you've lived this out? Mm-hmm. First of all, a few things. Um, that you said there resonated with me. Number one, I do hold pretty significant convictions that God has called called me first and foremost to be an advocate for my kids and to do whatever I can to um, invest in them, to advocate for them, to challenge them and grow them. And I think one of the ways that we can do that and really disciple our kids well is to help them understand um, what's unique about their context and how other people really live. And as an advocate for kids, one of the things that excites me is the opportunity for them to um, speak up for one another, mm-hmm. to learn from one another, to challenge one another and uh, in ways that we can't always do as adults. And so getting my kids involved in this is something that I'm, you know, I'm pretty excited about. Uh, the other thing I just comment based on what you said is a phrase we have at Compassion Um, a reflection point maybe is a a better thing to call it, is that the opposite of poverty is not wealth, Mm. but enough. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can often think that poverty is just economic, but really it's uh, spiritual and social and and physical and cognitive and relates to the, you know, um, created world around us. And in many ways, we in a Western context wouldn't think that we are impoverished, But so often the affluent lifestyle can come with all kinds of poverty or lack in interpersonal Mm. relationships, in depth of faith, in connectedness with those around us. And so, um, yeah, that's a wrestle point that I ask a lot for our family with our kids is how much is enough? What is sufficiency? Which is what God has called us to, this abundant life of sufficiency, Um, I forget the question you asked that, me. You know what? This is good. And you know what? So, cause I'm in Enneagram seven, we were yeah. talking about that. How much is enough Yeah, is like my life. I think my life quest, right? How much is enough? Yeah. And so yes, I need to teach my daughter that. And oh, I, my brain is going on so many ways, but I think, um, one of the things that you taught me years ago now, I mean, it feels like 10 years ago, but I think it was probably like two years ago is changed people change circumstances. Mm -hmm. And that touches on that, you know, what is like, what is the different, or what is the opposite of poverty? It's enough. And and so what does that mean? Like, how did people change? And I know that I was a changed person who then was released into changing circumstances for others. Yeah. And, and I still get to do that. So what does that look like in, so for a family, mm-hmm. that was your story. It sounds like to me. Yeah. So how do we live that out at home? How do we live that out at work? How do we live that out globally? I mean, it sounds like, you know, we can donate to an organization like Compassion and Sponsor a Child. We can change the life of another person, but is there a bigger answer to that? Yeah. Wow. That's the question, right? Um, first of all, yeah, Compassion not, doesn't just believe, but we have seen 
time and time again, how changed people do influence change around them. Mm -hmm. And we've seen how changed kids can change their families and changed families can change churches and changed churches can change communities. And we are believing that enough changed communities can change entire nations. Mm -hmm. Um, But it does, it relates back to, you know, the calling of Christ's followers is to um, share the gospel message and to allow people to be transformed through the, through the love of Jesus mm-hmm. and then to be transformed into His image so that they can then impact those around them. And, you know, I think it starts for us on asking God to say, you know, break our hearts for what breaks yours mm-hmm. and help us then to live that out and really practice everyday ways mm-hmm. where uh, maybe something that could be unexpected to hear from a global nonprofit leader. Um, but I really feel deep convictions that God calls us to care for the neighbors in our own backyard mm-hmm. first. It's very clear in scripture. Mm-hmm. And so what does it look like to be that expression of Christ to those around you? And then to ask yourself, how does that live out globally? Um, Not just how do we do it globally, but how can we connect with people who are already there so they can be a tangible expression of Christ in their communities as well? So, I mean, this is your mission start really rearing its ugly head. Yeah. No, beautiful, <laughs> beautiful head, head, incredible head. <laughs> is that where, you know, you, I, I call, you're called to go and make disciples, yeah. you know, um, and in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Like, I'm sure... How many mission sermons did you hear on that yeah, over yeah. your time with YWAM? For me, with my time with OM, it's like burned into my memory. And I think you're absolutely right. Like we're called to our Jerusalem, That's our Judea, it. our Samaria, and our we could go into that mm-hmm. big. But have you seen this? So my husband and I, we sponsor a couple of kids through compassion and really believe in compassion. And your maternal, I think it's maternal health program yeah, yeah. is just it's called change her story, mm-hmm. literally. Um, so this is the change. So can you tell me about someone you have seen that has actually been transformed? Like, does my sponsorship actually matter? I think that there are lots of people who would ask that. Like, does it actually matter yeah. that we do this? Yeah. So here's the thing. The intellectual answer is that, yes, it does. Compassion is they get the fed. right. <laughs> yep. Compassion is the only actually child sponsorship organization that has independent academic research that shows our long-term effectiveness. So kids in our program are more likely to stay in school, to get white-collar jobs, to be leaders mm-hmm. in their communities and in their churches, and to be released from the chains of poverty and equipped and mobilized to transform more lives around them. That happens time and time again. Uh, one of the stories that I'm reminded of, so a friend of mine, Tony Beltran, he grew up in the Dominican Republic and in a really um, impoverished town. And he would go out and offer to shine shoes for the mm-hmm. tourists who came to town. And his story would be, it wasn't uncommon for them at nighttime to have no food on the table. And his mom would often excuse herself, wash the dishes so that, um, you know, she didn't have to sit there and watch the pain of their family. His father was a man of faith and he would often pray these prayers at dinner time and say, thank you, Lord, for your abundant love and for the way you lavish love on us. And Tony used to get frustrated because he would say, who is this God of love and abundance and protection and provision because he wasn't seeing that 
played out practically in his Mm -hmm. life. And so Tony's story is eventually his local church, who partnered with Compassion, invited him in to be part of the child development program. And it was there that he was known, loved, and protected by members of his local community. Uh, He was connected with a loving sponsor who told him not just that God has plans and purposes for him, but again, in a tangible, real way, expressed those to him in the form of education and food and medical care and Mm. leadership development. And Tony's story is that in time he finished high school, he then went to college, he then got a master's, and fast forward, and last year, Tony was announced as the new national director of Compassion Dominican Republic. And so he is now partnering with hundreds of churches Mm -hmm. across his country to invest in over 100,000 kids so they too can be invested in and released Mm -hmm. from poverty. Okay, there's a lot of stuff to, to that is incredible. Yeah. And I'm sure that he's not his story isn't the only story like that because no. I read your magazine. So yeah. I know that this isn't the only story like this. And okay, so I want to talk to you. I don't know if we'll talk right now. Maybe we'll park sure. this question. I want to talk about the model of ministry because you mentioned that he gets to work with churches locally. So yeah. um so you know, well maybe we'll go there. Sure. Okay. So he works with churches in the Dominican Republic. And I mean, there's different models of ministry. Yeah. But as I understand it, Compassion's model is that Canadians help fund local projects through the local church in local contexts where people understand how, like, because there's this idea. And I think that there's people who are pretty turned off by the idea of, you know, that we are the saviors of the world here in Canada. Because are we? No. Turns out we're not. (laughs) Turns out we're not. We're not even the center. The center of the church is not in the West anymore. Where is the center of the church? uh, In many areas of Africa, the church is like Latin America. The church is alive and thriving and growing in ways that we in the West would long for. And and so we need, we actually need their them to help oh, influence us. Absolutely. But we do have finances mm-hmm. and we've been given more than we need. Yeah. And so how how do finances actually help a person like Tony? Like yeah. how do they actually work through that local church? Yeah. Really good question. So first of all, as you said, our model is that we are Christ-centered, child-focused, and church-based. And so we partner with almost 8,000 churches wow. in 25 countries and serve over 2 million kids. And that's Compassion Canada. Compassion specific. International. Or Compassion International. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's, that's right. That's a lot of kids. 8 it's million? Did you say? Over 2 million kids. 2 million kids. kids. Yeah, partner with 8,000 local churches in 25 Incredible. countries. Yeah. It's a lot of lives. It is. And so, you know, why the church? There's kind of a few layers to it, and I'll keep it simple for the sake of time, but it's, you know, why the church and then why that like indigenous partnering with people Mm -hmm. already on the ground? Well, um, not just we as compassion, we as Christ followers um, ought to believe and know that the church is God's chosen instrument Mm -hmm. to advance his purposes, to bring lasting hope and healing to those who desperately need it. And so the church has not just the calling, but also in many ways, the credibility, the proximity, the capacity to meet the needs of their own communities. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we partner with churches who have been there before compassion, are known and trusted, can understand not just the unique needs in their context, but the assets and the opportunities, and they have connections and relationships 
in ways that we're able to just come alongside and resource, as you said, and to equip them in doing what they're uniquely called to do. So to, mm. to answer your question about dollars, so um, it's so interesting because there's how we raise the money as a charity, and then there's what you do with it, mm-hmm. right? And it is important to understand the difference between the two. So we raise money through child sponsorship, and what we do with it is holistic child development. And so we have a very short line between the dollars here that go through our global ministry center in Colorado to a local church in one of these 25 countries who then uses that money from a sponsor to develop kids in four areas, spiritually, socially, physically, and cognitively. And so those resources go to ensure that that child is developed holistically as Jesus was Mm -hmm. in Luke Mm 2.52, which is the verse that this is all rooted in for us. It says, Jesus grew in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God, and in favor with man, which is spiritually, socially, physically, and cognitively. That's amazing. Wow. And so, and I'm thinking that those 2 million children actually represent a whole lot more people around the world because when you have one child, so I'm thinking of the children that we sponsor yeah, and we as a family sponsor two children through compassion, one through world vision, one through Erdo. Um, so we, you know, we're kind of an ecumenical family, but I'll tell you, and I don't say that to brag, but I'm just thinking, you know, this is where God has actually given us. I'm thinking that each one of those children is represented by a family. Yes. So there's probably at least two people involved in those children's lives. Yeah. And that would be also represented by a church and, uh, you know, and a community around them. And so uh, I'm, I'm just kind of in the moment having this very real-time realization that that, you know, what is it like $41 a month? $41, $41 a month is actually impacting not just one child, no. but is probably, I'm guessing conservatively would be impacting probably about five people. Is that fair to say? That's actually, yeah, we often say... Uh, A, yes, sponsoring one child impacts the entire family who then influences and impacts families around them. So there is a ripple effect of change that actually we have a hard time measuring right now, but are asking that very question, how do we measure and express the depth of transformation that we're seeing Mm -hmm. well beyond this one child? But what we do know and have tracked historically is that for every child that comes to um, a place of faith and commitment in their faith to Christ, four people also are influenced to put their faith in Christ as well for every Mm -hmm. child in our program. So it is incredible. Four to one. So Mm -hmm. that's five people. You know, (laughs) look at you. I'm not even good at math. Come and be one of our data scientists (laughs) or what? (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I think it's remarkable. And I, you know, and I, I ask this not because I want this to be a sales pitch for compassion, yeah. but very genuinely, I don't think many of us understand how a sponsorship model actually works. Like mm-hmm. we're familiar with it. We've grown up with TV ads about it and, you know, we we're familiar with it, but we don't know what it really does. Yeah. And so this is really, really helpful. Um, and so we're, you know, I am realizing that as we talk, we're going to have two parts to this interview <laughs> because I want to dive deep with Allison on her leadership and, mm. and how God has uniquely called her. But I, but I really do also want to talk about the person who preceded you yes. at Compassion because we both have an enormous fondness for him. You really have an appreciation for him. Yes. And so one of the things that I think messed with people's minds is that you had a 20-month succession period. 
And so, uh, of course, being kind of on the outside of that, people probably didn't ask you all these questions. You probably heard some crazy oh, things. Oh, no, I heard some, yes. Um, but I had a lot of questions leveled at me. Like, people were kind of suspicious of it. Yeah. Like, were you not ready for leadership? Is that why they needed to do this? Yeah. Or... Um, you know, do they not, it's just, who knows? And I kept saying, like, to be really honest, and I've told you this, yeah. that the day that they announced that they were looking for a successor to Barry, I looked at my colleague here at work and I was like, it's got to be Allison. Like, Allison is, she lives and breathes this. Mm. And so, like, for me, it seemed like a no-brainer. They had to go through due process, though, <laughs> and your board is extraordinary. They're incredible. And did really good work in yeah. doing due process. I'm so grateful that you're in this role. But okay, so let's talk about that. Yeah. Why twenty how how come it are you that slow? Did it take did it <laughs> take twenty question? months? Are you You're that actually slow? really sharp? So why twenty months? <laughs> oh, I love your question, Ellen. Okay, so let's let's walk through this because okay. there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, to Barry's credit, he has been thinking about transition and succession for a long time, actually close to a decade. And he would say that the greatest legacy that he wanted to leave in our organization was to transition well and to leave well and to set up a new leader well. In fact, he has articulated it as an act of worship, that as a mm. steward of this ministry, one of the ways that he can worship God is to plan a strong departure to ensure the organization is protected. So he has been planning this a very long time. As far as so the so trend slow. <laughs> so let the record show. He's also got a good sense of humor. Yeah, so he's I can a, joke about that. He's so. got a very good yeah. sense of humor. Uh, and he would say, Yeah, maybe I'm a little bit slow. That's good. Um, he's intentional. Uh-huh. So the transition process that I have been on has actually been much longer than 20 months. I think, you know, I haven't done an exact calculation, but probably about three years, perhaps, from the point of um, let me tell you a story. Can I tell you a story? Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. so Part of the due diligence in the transition was that our board was talking about what are the characteristics that we're looking for, um, where do we think God is calling the ministry to in the future, what will get us there. And so they spent a lot of time listening internally and externally, and in that, they met with all of the leaders. And um, first, Barry met with all the leaders to ask the question, what are we looking for? And then the board did. And he met with me last, and he asked the question, you know, what do you think we need in a leader? And I, you know, I had thought about it and had some pretty clear convictions around it. And he said, do you think we have, you know, anyone here? And, and I said, well, like maybe, you know, maybe this person, but probably not. I think mm -hmm. actually in light of the magnitude of change that I sense God is calling us to in response to our changing context, that an external person that can bring this, this, and this to the world would be very wise. And he said, well, what if I told you that most other people said you. And I think I probably laughed and said, well, I think that would be silly. And then realized, okay, maybe I need to just not write this off yes. like I did when God called me to compassion, which is a different story, but maybe submit myself to figuring out what God is doing here. So that was probably about three and a bit years ago. And that's like, I feel like we just heard a secret. Yeah, I like, think you I, might have actually just heard just a secret. I think we have just secret, but I'm really excited. Like, that's really cool because I trust wise leaders. Mm. And so for him to come to you and tell you that is incredible. What a gift. Yeah, he yeah. He believed in you. That's yeah, incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because I was on this track independent, what well, felt independent of that, 
when God called me into ministry in light of, or sorry, called me to compassion in light of my um, passion for the cause and desire to really um, submit my leadership and submit what God has entrusted me with, whether it's my experience, my skill set, my vantage point, my circle of influence to his purposes, I wanted to submit myself to an equipping process. Mm. And again, having no sense that it would lead to be the leader of this organization, I felt like there were three key areas of equipping that God was calling me to related to what I thought would be the different hats that a faith-based nonprofit leader would wear. Uh, The first being a shepherd and someone who really can lead in a ministry context and disciple their people. The second would be a practitioner, someone who can Mm -hmm. understand international development and the realities and complexities there. And the third is an executive, someone who can really lead uh, from a cross-enterprise perspective and understand technology, marketing, sales, customer service kind of work. Which this, this is a big hat. <laughs> I mean, when you break I mean, it into yeah. three, you only have to wear one at a time, yeah. so it feels less daunting. But So I submitted myself to that equipping process. I went to seminary. And did That's a, when I met you. You were going to Fuller, right? Yeah, Fuller yeah. Theological Seminary and did a Master of Arts in Global Leadership. Um, I studied international development and uh, international development with an emphasis in urban studies, uh, largely under Brian Fickert. And then eventually I went to Ivy Business School and did an MBA. Um, again, as part of my just submitting to what mm. I felt like God had called me to. Mm-hmm. How does that relate to Succession at Compassion? is two things. Number one, October 25th, 2019 was always Barry's date. Mm. We were working back from that date, the date that he planned to retire. And when the board decided and voted that I would be that next person, it was about two years before that date. But they wanted, because the decision became clear to them, they wanted to make that decision so that we could make those plans. Mm. I could relocate my family And ultimately, I affirmed the timeline and the roadmap that Barry already had and said, this allows me to finish up my MBA, to relocate my family to a new city, and to have a posture of listening and learning from Barry and from our staff with this president-elect hat, knowing Mm -hmm. I would be the future leader. Mm -hmm. And so we moved forward with that plan, and it was a real gift to be afforded the opportunity to keep learning formally and then informally Mm -hmm. in the organization. And I think, I mean, others may look at it and say, this is crazy, but I personally, and I know you've heard me say this before, is I think it is a gift. And I think that you had an uncommon gift Hmm. in having someone who is so well-respected and not just well-respected publicly, but well-respected by his people that he served. Um, at Compassion. And that's so obvious, like at the succession event, it was so obvious that not just his, his, his peers globally yeah, and not just um, his leadership team at Compassion, but Compassion as an organization yeah. so esteems Barry. And you got to learn from him. And I think this goes back to that early day, you know, kind of ministry that you started in mm-hmm. was this this gift of mentoring, not because of your age or your stage or anything like that, but because why not learn oh from someone wiser than you? It doesn't yeah. matter how old you are. It doesn't oh. matter what stage of life you're in. Why not? <laughs> yeah. 
And here's the thing. Um, I'm a learner is what I've realized. That may be no I, surprise. Yeah. A shocker. <laughs> yeah. How many, how many, what were you studying in the last know, four years? I yeah. Know. And I'm an Enneagram three for those okay. Enneagram folks. So the yes. achiever. And also not a shock. Not Yeah, perhaps not. Um, but you're right. Why wouldn't I want to not just take the posture, but the privilege to learn in a structured, unrushed way mm-hmm. from a leader who's been leading, you know, one of the largest mm-hmm. faith-based charities in Canada for, he's been CEO for uh, 25 years. Incredible. Been with the organization for 36 years. Why would I not want to glean as much as I possibly can? And um, what it really allowed me to do is lead our organization and our staff through a methodical process of looking back and understanding what are the markers along the way and the choices that we have made that led us to this point. And then where are we now? Mm-hmm. Where is God calling us to? And then what now shall mm-hmm. we do? Mm-hmm. And to do that collectively with our staff, with both the past leader and the future leader walking together, um, I can say was a real gift to them mm-hmm. as well. And I, I know that you have said, and, and as have many others, that God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. However, there's, a, there's an intention. That, like, we don't just sit there and say, God, equip me. And he just, I mean, he did that with people for the tabernacle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he did equip people. And he does do that to some extent. But at the same time, there's an enormous intentionality, not just in that you have the right education um, or the right experience, but that you surround yourself with the right people. Is yeah. that fair to say? Oh. And surrounding yourself with Barry, um, and and because I know some of the other leaders on your team with those people as well. Yeah, um, that is, I, I I think that that is leading with a humility that is so healthy. Yeah, and a wisdom that is so healthy that is actually strengthening. Is that fair to say? Because some people would see that as threatening, mm-hmm. and I think those were where some of the questions came from. Like, why would they make her do that? Oh, and wow. it was like a threat. Oh. Did anybody make you do this? Yeah. First of all, uh, the board basically gave me a green button that if I needed, you know, if it was the right thing for the organization to make the transition faster, we could do that. The green button that was you eject know, like, Barry. Like, no. <laughs> yeah, it should be the go button, not the, go the red button. button, the green button. Um, Barry does have a good sense of humor. Oh, he does. Thank goodness, Barry. We love you, Barry. Yes. Um, to Barry's credit, he immediately, uh, let me say this, part of our initial conversations with our staff, we're talking about, you know, what's not going to change and, uh, you know, keeping true to our mission, which of course, of course is critical in a season of leadership transition. And then we realized that organizationally, unrelated to CEO succession, we were in a season where, um, we needed to adapt and change and reinvent and redesign, reorganize mm. to be able to um, accomplish what we sensed God was calling to us to accomplish in this next era, which meant we should start to prepare for that now. And so to Barry's credit, the message he gave to our staff is that it is not status quo, pause, wait, mm. same. It is, let is, let's launch forward and walk forward together. And so any decision that was future looking, he deferred to me immediately. And I, of course, did the best that I could to honor him and to look back and, uh, you know, to leverage his wisdom and his experience. But it was a year of, of progress and movement where I never felt the organization wouldn't have felt held back in any way. 
Incredible. And okay, we have so much more to cover. And I want, we're going to do part two of this because I want to talk about your leadership. But I do, I want to finish this. I want to wrap this one up. It's not going to be wrapped in a bow because we could talk for another hour just about compassion. Because I have a deep appreciation for the work of compassion. I really do. And and I don't just say that because I get to do work for compassion. But I say that because I really am so grateful that I get to do work for compassion. I think you know that genuinely. I have such a deep appreciation. Um, what's the future? What does the future look like for compassion? Like, yeah. Yeah. Do you know? Can you say? Well, here has been the privilege of this season of transition is that we, as a leadership team and a discerning community, which would be the way I would describe our leadership team, spent time seeking God's direction and guidance on what this next era looks like and spent time praying and um, testing assumptions. And God really did converge our hearts and our minds Mm. around a vision for this next era. And, you know, I talked earlier about the fact that we serve over 2 million kids living in poverty. And yet there are, by some counts, over 1 billion children Mm. still living in poverty. And so our work is not yet done. And so we believe that God is calling us uh, to have three key areas of focus as we move forward. Work towards a world where every child can be afforded the opportunity to live a life free from poverty. Number two, to engage every Christ follower in joining God in advancing His mission of justice and compassion in a way that prioritizes kids and the poor. And through the process to see every life transformed. Hmm. That compassion would be not just a bridge where we exchange resources, but a bridge to exchange relationships where both the resourced and the under-resourced church can grow together, can grow Hmm. in their affection and the way they image the person of Christ um, and can impact more and more lives around them. So every child, every Christ follower, every life changed. Amazing. Oh, so much good to come. I'm I'm excited for this next season. I have a deep appreciation for Barry and the work yeah. that he has done. And I'm just, I, I want to say congratulations to you officially Thank that um, I'm so grateful to have you in this role as a CEO and president of Compassion Canada. And so we are going to continue this conversation. Hey. And we're going to talk about, like, we're going to go into some areas that I've warned you. We're going <laughs> to talk a little bit about, um, okay, this is going to sound really explosive, but like, we're going to talk about gender and demographics and leadership and what does it look like for a family and Okay. avoiding burnout and being healthy. And are you okay to go there? You've given me no choice. Okay. So I will you submit no choice. to the process. So we're going we're gonna to wrap this one up, but then I, I want to make sure that everyone tunes into the next one, but check the show notes. Um, we'll have information on Compassion Canada um, in the show notes so you can visit there. And if you're not a sponsor of a child yet, this is a great opportunity. We sponsor um, two children who, who have sit the same birth year as our daughter. And that just allows her to grow up with them and uh, incredible things. So I I do encourage you to engage. And if you have more money, I want to tell you that if you have $1,000, you can actually change the life. If you're a mama out there like me, you can actually change the life of another mother um, through a maternal health program. So you can go to the Compassion website. We'll have it linked below. But I really, I want you to engage with this as much as you can and learn more about how you can be transformed as you transform someone else's life. Is that fair to say? Amazing. I know this isn't a commercial, but I really want you to, I want you to love these people as much as I do. So thanks for being here today, Allison. Super excited that you're here. was a joy. Thanks, Ellen. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Changemakers podcast brought to you by Graf Martin Communications, your marketing team for good. Graf Martin Communications is Canada's leading PR and marketing agency serving faith-based organizations from coast to coast. Visit grafmartin.com to learn more.